Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. And it works on the other side of the relationship, too, because we live in a very class-segregated society. People have often have limited experience with homeless people, with poor people. There's a lot of fear that's involved in that relationship. Um, and as they come to know our vendors, they come to understand, you know, this guy isn't so different from me, isn't so different from, you know, some relatives that I have, isn't so different from friends that I know. Tim Harris is the executive director of the street newspaper Real Change and currently serves as the North American representative to the International Network of Street Papers. I recently sat down with Tim to discuss the roles street papers have within the multiple public spaces of the city the physical public space where the vendor sells the paper, the civic space where his paper influences the ongoing public dialogue in the community, and finally, the political space that has expanded when street newspaper vendors are encouraged to use their latent political power to show up at council meetings or at the voting booth. Yet before we got there, I started our conversation with a more fundamental question. What is a street newspaper? And what is the function it provides? Well, I mean, the idea of a street paper is real simple. It provides an immediate income opportunity for homeless and very low income uh, people, socially excluded people. Um, They pay a bit up front for their papers that they buy, and then they sell it for the cover price and tips, and they keep everything they earn. So our paper has a cover price of $2. The vendors pay 60 cents per copy up front. Um, And people can use that income in any way that works for them. They can work as much or as as little as they want. It has extreme flexibility in terms of when and where they work how they dress for it, that sort of thing. It's really easy for people to get started. When I started this street paper, I started another paper in Boston in 92 called Spare Change, which just had its 25th anniversary and moved here in 94 to start Real Change in Seattle. And when I started it, my notion was that it was a low-threshold employment program and a platform for doing advocacy in a cross-class sort of way that involves homeless people and meets their immediate needs while they're involved and gives them a way to talk about, about what they need. What I've discovered over the years is that really the most important thing that street papers do is to embed people in a network of relationships that is really sustaining for them. You know, you get these people who uh, oftentimes have been kind of kicked around for much of their life. Their self-esteem is through the floor. They've come to believe all of those messages that they get about themselves, that they have no value as, as a person. Um, and they start to internalize those ideas and have very limited notions of what their own prospects for success are. And what I've found over and over is that when people start selling the paper, first they experience a kind of personal agency that they haven't often experienced, um, at least for a while, you know, where that link between the effort that they make and the reward that they receive for that is so direct, you know, they come in, put down six bucks, buy 10 papers, um, a few hours later, they got 30 bucks in their pocket, you know, and then they repeat as necessary and as they're able to and to meet their needs. But the next thing that happens is really very profound because we've got this broad base of readers 
who really support the paper and really support our vendors. And they get to know our vendors and they treat them as a human being, you know? They act like they're a person. And often that's a new experience for people to be taken seriously in that way, to be treated as a peer, to be treated as somebody who is a friend. And that becomes really transformational in the way that they see themselves and their prospects in the world. And, you know, what I see over and over again is that people get that affirmation that comes from the community that surrounds them as they sell the paper, that their notion of who they are no longer squares with some, you know, possibly negative behaviors that they've been involved in before. You know, I see a lot of vendors come to the point because I say they've been addicted to crack or, or heroin. And they, they often have this kind of moment of insight where they go, you know, I'm making a lot of money on this and I, you know, barely own a shirt on my back. And if I weren't spending all my money on drugs, I'd be getting somewhere. And then they stop, you know, or, or at least they try to stop. Sometimes it takes several 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 tries. That's how that goes. Right. Uh, but the important thing is that they come to value themselves. And it works on the other side of the relationship, too, because we live in a very class-segregated society. People have often have limited experience with homeless people, with poor people. There's a lot of fear that's involved in that relationship. Um, and as they come to know our vendors, they come to understand, you know, this guy isn't so different from me, isn't so different from, you know, some relatives that I have, isn't so different from friends that I know, you know, this is just a regular person who's come on some hard times, but somebody that I can relate to as a person. And that's sort of a window into um, a different way of looking at a uh, marginalized sector of our society that's subject to a lot of prejudice. Right. And it, it seems like once that vendor is out there with the paper in their hand, uh, your vendors have a badge that they mm -hmm. wear in a lanyard around their neck. Now they have the vests as mm -hmm. well. Like there's, there's this imprimatur of officialdom that begins to provide a bridge to the rest of society. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think of that as the magic of the commodity relationship. <laughs> you know, it's, not a word I expected to come out of your mouth today. It's, it's, it's the, ma the magic of the commodity relationship because they have a product that has value and they're selling it. They're not out there as a panhandler. They're not asking for something for nothing. And people respect that. People respect that they're, you know, essentially they're all entrepreneurs you know it's a wholesale retail wholesale retail relationship that they have in buying the paper they're all entrepreneurs that are investing in their own success mm -hmm. and people respect that and it also just takes that fear bar that people have around approaching somebody who is poor on the street you know if there's a panhandler on the street for most people, that's somebody that you want to avoid, not necessarily get into a conversation with. You know, when somebody's got the badge, they've got the vest, they've got the paper in their hand, they're part of a respected organization, it makes them approachable, it makes them safe, and it opens the door to be getting to form a relationship. Yeah, yeah, that, that individual connection is definitely one of the pieces of success that I see coming out of it. Um, so who writes and what does Real Change cover? And what's the editorial direction? Uh, we have about 15 staff people at Real Change. We've got 15 full-time staff, and four of them work in the newsroom. Uh, we have an editor, we have an art director slash graphic designer, um, and we have two full-time reporters, and they all come out of professional news background, um, either in daily or weekly journalism, uh, one of our journalists actually comes out of broadcast journalism, Lisa Edge, who's our, our cultural reporter. Um, so we have a professional news staff, 
and it's a weekly publication, published 10 to 11,000 copies of the paper every week. Um, and then there are a number of volunteers who also contribute content, and a lot of times those folks have professional journalism backgrounds as well, and this is sort of their way of, of keeping in the game, even though it's not their primary employment. Um, part of our mission, I mean, our mission is to provide opportunity and voice to uh, homeless and low-income people taking action for uh, economic and racial equity. Um, and uh, so we actively solicit content from our vendors. We do vendor profiles. We encourage them to write op-eds. We work with them to bring it up to the quality that we expect to see in the paper. We don't. We have a pretty firm line that we don't do pity publishing. You know, just because someone's homeless doesn't mean that we're going to publish their screed. It has to be good. Um, we'll work with them to get it there. That's awesome. Uh, how about the editorial direction? Who decides what is going in the paper on a weekly basis? That would be our editor, okay. Aaron, Aaron Burkhalter. And we're really focused on issues of race and class equity as they occur in, in our community. We try to be a, a window right. into what's going on there. So it seems like, um, in one sense, you're kind of disrupting the public sensibility around an individual person who's experiencing homelessness through that relationship you, that you described earlier, but also through the editorial bent of the organization, you're disrupting this larger kind of cultural narrative around what it means to be poor, what it means to be living in this city at this time and, and be dealing with issues that, that real change is concerned with. And I think that I'd love for to hear your response and kind of the, the fourth estate role of the paper. Yeah, well, I think that that's absolutely right, because we have that focus on race class issues, on housing and homelessness, on police accountability, um, development, uh, things of that nature, and we approach it through this race class equity, equity lens. Um, you know, we see the stories that we publish getting picked up by other forms of media within the city very regularly. Um, our job is to push the envelope. You know, our job is to have that focus, to push the envelope, to be able to say things that um, other people aren't necessarily as free to say. You know, one of the pieces of our model is that 70% of our funding comes through individual contributions. We've got about 2,000 people every year who write checks to help support our work. And another 25% of our funding comes from earned income through the circulation of the paper primarily. So that leaves just like 5% that's foundation support, and we don't take any kind of, of government support because we uh, don't want even the perception of our editorial direction being, being compromised by that. Um, so, you know, we're able to give voice to a lot of the concerns that are held by, you know, say, the human services community in Seattle that they're not as free to talk about because their funding comes directly from the city. And we're able to provide this sort of, I don't know, I guess a kind of a foil um, where those points of view can get out there. Mm -hmm. That independence seems like such an important thing. Um, so let's go back to the beginning of your story. You, you kind of glossed over it coming out here in 94. Mm -hmm. Where did this come from? Why did you start it in Boston? Why did you bring it out here? What, what's kind of the roots of your connection? Well, you know, I have a bit of a checkered past. <laughs> um, I, That's what makes for good podcasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a pretty crappy family that I needed to get out of. And, you know, I was a pretty troubled teen. In 10th grade, I got kicked out of all three high schools in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
Um, I dropped out. Is that the triple crown of of Sioux Falls? I think so, you know, I mean, I'm not aware of anybody else who's done this, you know, I like to think that I hold some kind of a record around that. Um, And I went into the Air Force uh, to get out of Sioux Falls, and I started going to community college when I was in the Air Force, and then I, I got accepted at UMass Amherst because it was... Uh, it was it was uh, the the 80s, and it was still possible to get accepted in a decent college and be poor and you know have that kind of a past. I don't think that that would happen now. Um, but you know, when I left Sioux Falls, I was living in a single room occupancy hotel above the Arrow Bar and across the street from the Nashville Club. I was living in Sioux Falls' version of Skid Road. Um, and, you know, those were people that I really related to. So, you know, I went to college and I minored in journalism, I majored in social thought and political economy, and I got out and I moved to Boston. I became an organizer uh, working with homeless folks. There was a, a homeless encampment in Boston that started out as a protest encampment in front of the state house. Um, and it was supposed to only be a protest encampment. Mm-hmm. Uh, But the folks who were living there decided that it was more than a protest encampment, that it was going to be the self-run survival encampment. And it was a kind of a weird dynamic because initially it was supported by activists and the human services community that were involved in organizing this protest. But as the homeless people who were involved in this encampment, took over their own encampment, decided it was going to be an ongoing survival encampment. The advocates really couldn't deal with that dynamic, and they kind of pulled away, and these homeless folks were kind of out there hanging on their own. And I was I was a journalist. Uh, I was living in a squat doing this kind of an anarchist publication called Street Magazine. And I got involved in that as sort of an embedded journalist, you know? I wanted to live that and write about it. And I became more or less their unofficial organizer during that period. They, they moved it to City Hall, which was about three blocks away from the State House. Um, and they were there for almost four months. And during that period, I was really involved with them helping to organize. And I saw, you know, things that were just an amazing testament to the human spirit under duress. And I saw um, some really awful things as well. But, you know, I saw poor people who were struggling to have their own voice. And I really connected with those folks, and I decided that that was what I wanted to do. And uh, I wound up getting a job for an organization called Boston Jobs with Peace. Um, And they were sort of on the cutting edge because, you know, this was the late 80s. And they were organizing poor people around their concerns and making connections to the federal budget, the military budget in particular. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they, this, this, I was the only staff person, and they were willing to basically let me do whatever I wanted to. Um, so I did a lot of organizing of, like, protesting encampments and a lot of civil rights organizing and we made a lot of noise and we were getting in the papers um but i was dissatisfied with the work because it didn't feel like i was building institutional power with homeless folks it felt like just a sort of a series of press hits that weren't really building toward anything and what i noticed 
during this period was that, you know, I had this value that the voices of directly affected people needed to have a leading role in this. But economic justice organizing has a very, very long and uncertain timeline. So you really can't tell somebody if you come and do this sit-in at the state house, that means you're going to be in housing a year from now. It doesn't work that way. Um, and homeless people's needs are generally very immediate and very dire. Um, so the seminal street paper of the modern street paper movement is generally regarded as being street news in New York, which took off in the late 80s. Um, and I looked at that, and a number of people looked at that, and a bunch of street papers were organized at that time, really looking at street news and going, wow, that is a brilliant idea. You know, so in Boston, I took the organizers approach to it. For me, the street paper was a way to bridge that contradiction right. that I just talked about, and also the contradiction of trying to build institutional power in a community that's by definition transient. You know, the street paper looked like a great way to do that. Um, during that time, uh, the Journal Itinéraire started in Montreal. They're still going. Um, and they also had a organizing project take on it, sort of empowerment-based. Uh, Streetwise was another early paper in Chicago. They had more of a job training employment program kind of a spin on it. Um, and also in 91 or so, uh, the big issue in London got started, and they were a bit different because they started with a 800,000 pound grant from the body shop, which you know back then was more money than it is now. And they were able to come out of the gate for a street paper, just very highly capitalized and professionalized. And they saw themselves as a socially entrepreneurial business that provided employment for homeless folks, but their goal was to put out a very highly professional mass media product for people to be able to sell on the streets. Um, so over the years, those various models have kind of cross-fertilized and, and, you know, a whole bunch of street papers have, have come into existence. The INSP, the International Network of Street Papers, um, has more than a hundred members across 36 countries. Wow. Wow. So you're you're on the board of that organization now. Mm -hmm. And I think you're the only domestic United States representative. Yeah, I'm the on North the American guy. You're the North American guy. North American guy. We've got somebody from Brazil, somebody from Switzerland, somebody from Australia somebody from Manchester, UK, and somebody from Gothenburg, Sweden, nice. uh, on the board of this organization that is based in Glasgow. I can imagine that those get-togethers are fun. <laughs> They're really fun. <laughs> we meet face-to-face -face three times a year, so it's, it's really quite a privilege to be part of this organization. And, and what is the role of the kind of the umbrella organization, the global umbrella organization? It's a professional organization. You know, the main products that the INSP, that INSP offers to membership is we have a street news service where we share contact. Content is kind of like the Reuters of the street paper movement. Okay. Um, we've shared interviews with the Pope with the Dalai Lama, uh, uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> so that, I that, mentioned that, her in the yeah, same breath is, with the Pope and the Dalai Lama. That but, is the modern-day trinity right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's that. And then every year, there is an international conference 
where we get together for three days and we're able to talk face to face every year. A different street paper hosts the conference, so we get to see their operations and how they run. We get to get a window, a window into the workings of a, a street paper. Uh, we hosted it three years ago here at Seattle University. And the next year after that, it was hosted in Athens, Greece. Um, and the year after that, it was hosted in Manchester. Um, so there's that. And then there's the Resource Hub, which is a place for street papers to share basically internal documents and plans and things that are of relevance to other street papers so that we all don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we take on a new initiative or go into a new unfamiliar area. Um, we help new street papers to get started. Um, it's, it's basically a professional support organization for folks who are doing street papers. And, and you know, it's... It's funny because people think street papers and they think these little rinky-dink organizations that, you know, more or less got their heads up their asses. But, you know, like the big issue Australia is something like a $12 million organization. Um, and a lot of these organizations are just, you know, very big, very sophisticated, very professional. And we learn from that. Um, and you've also got, you know, very grassroots organizations and, and we all learn from each other. So it's interesting. I'm thinking about it from a professional organization perspective. It seemed like there's so much to learn from one another. On the other hand, I can't help but think that some of the particulars around the society which in the in which the papers are working could be vastly different. Oh absolutely. So what what are some of the lessons learned and kind of conversations that you have around the support structure that's in Gothenburg or wherever, mm -hmm. and here in the United States. Well, when other street papers from around the world came to Seattle, and they witnessed the unsheltered homelessness that we have here, when they saw um, the ten cities that we have, both the sanctioned and, and unsanctioned ten cities that we have, when they saw the level of visible poverty that we have on our streets, they were blown away. You know, I mean, the European papers don't see that in their countries because there's just a completely different level of social support for poor people, you know. Um, the CEO of the Big Issue Australia, he said to me that, that he thought that the United States was a first world country with third world conditions. Um, and I think that's, that's dead on, you know. I think that another thing that I've observed is, you know, one of the things that they say, um, particularly in the, U in the UK, is that, you know, when America sneezes, the rest of us catch a cold. Um, so they have seen trends toward the criminalization of homelessness that started here 25 years ago. Those have started taking off um, in Europe just over the last five years. Mm. Um, and they're, they're starting to see that there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they have had much more robust government funding and involvement in, in homelessness and social services than we have here. So it's, you know, to some extent, it's kind of apples and oranges, mm -hmm. um, what what they're dealing with and what, what we're dealing with. I mean, they see the same sorts of things that we do, but on a different scale, right. not quite the extreme scale. Right. But I'll, I, I would think that from your perspective, it also gives you a higher level vantage point around some of the political conversations that we have, or public policy conversations 
about, you know, this notion of the deserving poor. And, and that seems to be an idea that has been foreign, at least in, in European cultures. Um, or, you know, people who are choosing to be homeless, so I'm doing air quotes uh, there. Um, those seems, seem to be conversations that haven't been present in many societies, um, but that are certainly present here in the United States. Um, just wondering if there's a if there's a cross pollination or what your your thoughts are on on that. And you know, I, I imagine you get frustrated by the conversation here, having seen the conversations that happen in other countries. Yeah, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. Um, <laughs> you know the deserving and undeserving poor thing. You know, there's this thing that happens from time to time that I used to have a hard time wrapping my head around. And it would be the phone call that I would get. And and people would say something like, I saw one of your vendors smoking while he was out selling the paper. And I want you to know that I can't support that. And I'm not going to buy the paper anymore. And I would get these calls and I would think, what the hell, you know? I mean, where does this person, of course people lie to them, but but I would get off the phone and I would think, where the hell do they get off, you know? What do they think that they have a right to do that? And it finally occurred to me that that comes from this perspective that this is charity this is charity and what comes with charity and with the sort of charitable impulse is i think also this kind of embedded right to judgment um and one of the things that i really like about the street paper model even though you know not everybody appreciates it is that it's not charity it's, it's a job, and these folks are earning their money, and it's theirs to do with what they, what they like. Um, yeah, it seems like such a powerful, I mean, you've talked about it a number of times, sort of socially excluded, you know, struggling to have their own voice, this notion of self-determination, that power of not only connecting to others, but connecting to yourself in a more powerful way. And being able to define your own situation rather than being defined by others continually. Yeah. You know, having uh, an institution that is speaking on with you and on your behalf, um, that's getting your voice out there, that is um, telling it like it is from your own point of view. Uh, that's a fairly rare and very necessary thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've talked about the role of real change as kind of within the public realm and, and the public policy sphere. We've talked about it at the very personal level. One thing we haven't talked about as much is real change as a political force. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but you've certainly entered the political fray in a number of times. Can you talk about that role that real change and other street newspapers have in their communities? Absolutely. You know, this isn't true of all street papers. Okay. We are more, more politically oriented than is typical for street papers. Um, I actually gave a presentation at the last conference of the INSP about organizing vendors, and it generated a lot of excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's because a lot of the um, a lot of the European papers or papers that have been influenced around the world by the more European socially entrepreneurial model. I mean, they view themselves primarily as small businesses or as, as socially entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and you know, while they're certainly doing some advocacy, it hasn't been a major focus for them. And when other papers look at how we engage our vendors as political actors, they get really excited about that. So, you know, that's something that we've brought to the international street paper movement that, that I'm proud of. But but we've had, 
a pretty huge impact in this city. A couple of the campaigns that I'm proudest of um, was back in what, 2008 or so, 2007, 2008, when there was a push to build a new municipal jail for misdemeanors. And this project was just on Greece skids. It was going forward. And there really wasn't much debate about whether it was going to go forward. The debate was how it was going to go forward and where they were going to put it. That it was necessary was, was kind of a done deal. Um, and we were through our newspaper and through an initiative campaign that, that we started, we were able to reframe that from a fairly value-neutral discussion that was more or less about zoning and what neighborhood it was going to be built in and really on sort of that level of discussion. We were able to change that narrative and turn it into a community-wide discussion about <clears throat> about race and class and criminal justice and how that plays out in our city. And as it happened, this was all happening over a major electoral campaign period in the city. And over the course of our campaign. I mean, when we first started this campaign, we couldn't even get the most progressive member of the city council to book uh, the Bertha Landers room, the big function room in City Hall for us to hold our launch event because he was he was afraid that the issue was too too hot. And by the end of our campaign, basically the only people who were still supporting building the prison were the mayor, the county executive, and the city attorney. And all three of them lost to people who did not support building the jail. And within a year after they came into office, we had an agreement with the county extending the usage of the current arrangements for another two decades, and the jail was dead. So I feel like, you know, we got to sort of change the history of Seattle in that. Um, and another one that we're real proud of is when there was an aggressive panhandling ordinance that was on the table here. And what, is it, what does aggressive panhandling mean, or how is it defined in that conversation? Well, you know, it gets, it, it begins with the idea of people being in your face about panhandling and following you down the street and so forth, the kind of stuff that nobody likes, the kind of stuff that nobody approves of, and the kind of stuff that's already against the law. But under the cover of that, it gets extended to basically anybody who is panhandling, and it gets to be a real judgment call. Um, and that's what's troubling about these sorts of campaigns. And they get framed in terms of public safety, which of course everybody is for, and the rhetoric around it gets alarmist. And I really can't think of any other examples except for what happened here when an aggressive panhandle, when aggressive panhandling legislation um, came up and was not approved. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened that time around was, was actually somewhat similar because this aggressive panhandling ordinance was also uh, aimed at that other sector besides homeless people and visibly poor people that, that make folks uncomfortable, you know, shoppers, tourists uncomfortable. It was also pretty clearly uh, aimed at youth of color who were hanging out in the downtown area and was a vehicle to, you know, have more leverage to, to move them out of the downtown. So we were able to change that conversation by aligning with the ACLU and the NAACP 
and really, again, reframing the conversation and turning it into one that's about civil rights and exclusion. Um, and we were able to prevail in that. I mean, the interesting wrinkle, as I'm sure you well remember, is that uh, we had a newly elected populist mayor who owed absolutely nothing to the downtown class because they supported the other guy. And he came into office and he said, this is not Seattle's values. I'm not going to sign off on this thing. He vetoed the legislation coming out of the city council. And we were able, just by the skin of our teeth, to get a majority on the council to sustain that veto. And that piece of legislation went down. Um, so, you know, things like that are really exciting. We've also been very involved in um, opposing sweeps of homeless encampments, putting a human face on that, really, you know, humanizing the issue and teasing out the, the, the human rights dimensions of it, and making that public in, a, in an effective way. That's been an ongoing fight for us for over a decade. Um, and, and it still continues, but we've been able to have a big impact on how people are treated. It strikes me that one of the other ways that you've been engaged politically, maybe less of a clear-cut win or loss on this one, but it's around the issue of criminalization of homelessness. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time getting their head around that because, uh, you know, the first reaction is, of course, people who are experiencing homelessness aren't criminals, but they don't see maybe the pernicious effects of some what on the face of it are relatively probably good policy suggestions, but they don't see maybe how it affects people who are living on the street or are in a difficult situation, how that might affect them. Maybe talk about two examples of that, come to mind for me at least. One was around the smoking ban, ban, ban not banned. <laughs> the second one was a concern about um, when the Downtown Seattle Association was offering to uh, take over some of the programming in a couple of the public spaces. And I, I know that you had real concerns about that and maybe give a grade to that effort now that it has a couple of years under its belt. Sure. Well, you know, a little bit of context for both of those things is that under the same mayor that I talked about previously, the populist guy, um, there was a organizing initiative because, you know, these things are always at a sort of a simmer in the city politics. And, and sometimes that simmer comes to more of a boil. And it becomes, you know, hard for a mayor who is on the right side of these issues and favors long-term solutions that actually have an impact on the, the, the what we all want to see having a downtown that's livable for, for everybody. Um, you know, there is a temptation to engage in shorter term, more punitive criminalization solutions because, because people think that you're going to have a bigger, more immediate impact and, and sometimes don't have faith that these longer term solutions are actually going to get any traction and, and change anything. So. He initiated this roundtable of downtown interests, people who work in the criminal justice system, human service providers, to have discussion and inform each other of our perspectives and visible poverty in the downtown. And through that process, we really came to see that we had more in common than not. And that these folks who were downtown business owners, you know, weren't necessarily heartless, horrible people who wanted to see all homeless folks thrown in jail. Um, that, you know, they just didn't want to be cleaning up shit from their doorstep every morning, you know, and then they wanted to uh, you know, what they wanted was, was really quite reasonable. And they came, we came to understand the sorts of pressures that they were under. And more importantly, they came to understand 
just how complicated it is to get somebody who is chronically homeless and on the street, um, mentally ill, perhaps addicted, you know, that, that you can't just snap your fingers and get that person into housing. Sometimes it takes, it takes years of, of just steadily working with somebody to get them to another place. And they also came to understand just how radically under-resourced the system is, you know. I mean, here in Washington State, we've got the most progressive tax system in the entire United States. This has an impact on things like access to treatment. It has an impact on, on help for people who are mentally ill. These things are all in much shorter supply than they should be. And they came to, to understand that. So we had this kind of common ground that we could work from where they were refraining from refraining from demonizing us and we were refraining from demonizing them and you know we came to understand that you know the sort of venn diagram of our intersecting interests that we had about that we agreed on 80 percent of stuff you know so when they started talking about uh smoking ban in downtown parks um you know our first instinct on that was to see it as a tool to move poor people on from public spaces because that is how it is employed in most communities when these things are are initiated um and as we worked on that and came to hear other folks' perspectives. Um, well, they, they basically moderated the legislation. You know, they took away the fine that was proposed to be attached to it. They made it non-punitive in that regard. And they really turned it into, uh, what's the phrase that they always use? It's, uh, Denormalization, denormalization, <laughs> right? You know, it's a sort of public health approach um, where they want to more or less stigmatize smoking and make it less normal. And and you know, so so this thing, which could have potentially been a tool to move poor people out of public space and to find them, and and you know, the tangent. The problem with these sort of criminalizing fines is that they generally don't get paid and they snowball into missed court appearances and warrants and turn into things that have real legal consequences for people. And that's what we were concerned about. We weren't concerned about the 50 or $75 fine. We were concerned about what happens after that and the kinds of vulnerability that that creates for people who are, are struggling. Um, so, you know, they backed off on the fine and the park level intervention became you're not allowed to smoke in public parks and if you do, a ranger or somebody might walk up to you and say you can't do that and hand you a leaflet on how to get help to quit. Well, we didn't have a big problem with that. And, and there was also, you know, some, some post-legislation work to ensure that this wasn't being disproportionately targeted at, at poor people. We've been satisfied with the results of that. Um, the parks activation thing was sort of similar, you know? I mean, it focused on two downtown parks, right, both of them right in the middle of uh, sort of main retail districts in the downtown area. Um, and both parks, places where there was a lot of traffic of homeless folks who use that park as somewhere to be during the day. And, you know, again, this park's activation is often something that is used as a tool to move poor people out of public space. And we had enough of a relationship with the Downtown Seattle Association through the Center City Initiative, the thing that I talked about previously, 
we had enough of a relationship with them that we didn't automatically jump to that's what this is and we're going to oppose it in a knee-jerk way because that's what we as homeless advocates are obligated to do. You know, we were able to look at what they were actually planning on doing for activating that space and, and they assured us that this wasn't about moving poor people out. It was about making the parks more active and that they would remain a welcoming space for homeless folks who are using the parks during the day. And that's exactly what happened, you know? I mean, our office is located just, you know, a block and a half away from Occidental Park. And, you know, I walk through there every day, a couple of times at least. And two years ago, you would walk through Occidental Park and there would be this concentration of homeless folks over on one end of the park where they sort of hung out. Um, and, you know, the rest of the park wasn't really that used by the public. So they moved in all these like tables and chairs and, you know, big chess boards, ping pong tables, basketball hoops, beanbag games and all this kind of stuff. And they started having uh, regularly scheduled concerts in the park for lunch hour They moved food trucks in there. And what I saw and what I continue to see is that this park is much, much more used than it used to be. And instead of the homeless folks being like sort of segregated in the, the ghetto of the park, they use the whole thing. You know, they hang out at the tables and chairs just like everyone else. They play ping pong just like everybody else. You know, they're out there shooting baskets and that's okay with everybody. And it's what I love about it is that, you know, the park has truly become this kind of a cross-class place that is active and everybody is welcome. Yeah. And it's so few parks in any city are like that. It seems like that extra programming affords that opportunity for that additional connection to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and, uh, I think it actually, you know, winds up being pretty affirming for, for the poor folks who are hanging out in the park. They're not ghettoized anymore. They're accepted in the park. They're part of the landscape there. They hang out with everybody else. Um, I see it as positive progress. So why does homelessness exist, Tim? It reminds us of our standard interview question. Real Change has this interview question that uh, we always drop on people where we go, why are people poor? <laughs> Taking <laughs> a page out of your playbook. <laughs> people are always caught off guard with that. Uh, homelessness exists because of insufficient social investment. You know, it is the end of a whole long chain of underinvesting in people, whether it be the education system, you know, whether it be the criminal justice system, whether it be uh, providing affordable housing for people who the market is failing. Um, Homelessness is, you know, the visible culmination of a huge constellation of social dysfunction and underinvestment in, in, in people. Um, and, you know, here in the United States, I think that there is another wrinkle to it because, you know, the market is king market determines everything, you know, I mean, crap, after, what, 35 years of supply side, of not supply, what is it, supply side economics, the, the trickle-down yeah, trickle yeah, theory, yeah. you know, after 35 years of, of, you know, decisively showing that that shit doesn't work, it's a myth that we continue to believe in as, as, as a society. And, you know, they were able to pass the tax plan that, that they just 
dead, you know, based on, on that ideology. You know, we've had disinvestment in public housing since the Carter administration, you know, this seemed, they seem to be in some kind of an end game around that now with Ben Carson, where things are getting really ridiculous. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just an, an undervaluing of people. And I think, you know, the other piece of it is that homeless folks are kind of this throwaway class of surplus people. You know, I think that people really don't appreciate the extent to which uh, a lot of people just don't have viable employment options. You know, I mean, a story that we often see at Real Changes is people who have really worked all their lives doing some kind of manual labor, you know, construction, maybe they're a roofer, maybe they drove a truck, whatever, and then, you know, they get into their 50s and their body gives out and they can't do that kind of work anymore, you know, and they're not gonna, they're not gonna retrain and become a software engineer, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who are out of the labor force and realistically speaking, stand very little odds of coming back into the labor force. Um, and I think you also have to look at mass incarceration in the United States. When you look at the hockey stick of mass homelessness in the United States and mass incarceration, in the United States, it's more or less the same line on the graph over the same years. And I think that both of these things are a way of containing what is essentially a surplus population to the economy. You know, I mean, in Marxian terms, it's the, the reserve, not just the reserve army of the poor, but the reserve reserve army of the poor, you know, these aren't the frictionally unemployed that, you know, are being held in abeyance until better times when they can re-enter the economy. For the most part, these are people who are never going to re-enter the economy, and we don't value them enough as a society to do anything more than the barest mitigation of poverty. And I think that's my biggest critique of the way that we approach homelessness in this country is that, I mean, we talk about ending homelessness, that's been bullshit for at least two decades. Well, we don't, we don't have a system to end homelessness. We have a poverty management system that triages levels of misery and and helps people based on their risk and vulnerability and how expensive they are in system terms. Um, and we're not keeping up even with that. Oh, that was... That's depressing, isn't depressing, it? Depressing, yeah. Yeah, no, I flattened many a person with that speech. Appreciate it. So let's let's maybe end uh, <laughs> on a different tack there. Um so I gotta take the opportunity to ask you as someone who deals with words on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So often, as I've been engaging this conversation more, people just feel intimidated by the words. They don't know what the offensive words are, how to engage in the conversation. Is, is it homeless? Is it people experiencing homelessness? Is it poor? Is it working poor? Is it this? Is it that? What's your advice to someone? What are there are there things that you just shouldn't go to? Are there ways that you should come in this conversation that's productive? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I mean, there's this debate that I have heard for the last twenty five years. Should we talk about homeless people or should we talk about houseless people? Um, Personally, I don't have a lot of patience for that because, you know, it's, it's all the same thing. I think what people are getting at with that is that uh, the implication that if you don't have a house, you don't have a home. 
you know, it's this sort of implied level of, I guess, spiritual disenfranchisement that is inherent, some people think, in the word homelessness, that makes them prefer houseless. Um, houseless, as a words guy, you know, because I, I take the beauty of the English language seriously, and I think houseless is just an ugly word, and I refuse to use it. Um, <laughs> but I do think... Because you're an aesthetic. I am. Yes. <laughs> I am. Um, but there is a distinction that I try to observe, not always, but I try to observe, and I think a lot of other people do, too. Um, to not say the homeless, the homeless, or just homeless, and to try, because that is reductive, and it's lumping people into this abstract category that begins to use lose meaning and just, you know, sort of exist in the imagination as this uh, negative thing. Um, so I always try to say homeless people, you know, bring that word people back into it to just remind folks that that is what we're talking about. It's not some kind of faceless, abstract problem. It's, it's people. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com.